Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week's plenary session, I have a special bonus episode. This is a lecture that Dr. Stacy Duzitzina gave here at OHSU as part of Grand Rounds. It's a lecture on the cost of drugs and out-of-pocket spending. You won't want to miss this. It's a real treat. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on plenary session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm going to be talking today about prescription drugs, um, and I study a lot related to both their prices but also access for patients, so kind of the interaction between insurance, benefit design, and um, drug prices. So um, feel free to ask questions or comment throughout, um, but there should be time at the end as well uh, for additional discussion. So you know, why does spending on drugs matter? Um, we know we spend a lot of money on everything in healthcare, but spending on drugs is projected to be increasing quite fast over time. Uh, this is national health expenditures trends, um, and they are projecting out through 2027 that we are going to be spending hundreds of billions of dollars on prescription drugs. Now, I was recently looking at the Medicare trustees report for Medicare Part D, and the rate of growth in Medicare Part D is just astounding. From about $10 billion in the reinsurance phase, that's when taxpayers uh, pay the biggest share, um, that has grown from $10 billion in 2010 to over $40 billion now, and it's projected to grow to $90 billion in the next decade. So our rate of spending is you know, going up pretty substantially, and we know some of this is related to high-priced drugs like uh, the hepatitis C curative therapies that are used in a large number of patients and also have a high per-patient treatment cost. We also know this is partially related to some bad behavior in the pharmaceutical industry of taking old products that are on the market and just increasing their price. Um, notably, when we think about kind of the bad actors like Martin Shkreli and what he did to drug prices, you know, there was a lot of calling him before Congress and a lot of blaming him. But today, the price of that drug is still the same price as before he got called to Congress. So, you know, there's a lot of showmanship about let's do something about prices or you're a bad guy, your company's doing something bad. But, you know, for all of the showmanship, there isn't usually a direct action to get those prices back down. And of course, we know there are cases like insulin, where this is really in the forefront of people's minds, hearing about 
rationing of insulin and people having their children die, for example. Um, a lot of the drug pricing hearings in Congress this year have featured people who have um, eat insulin or who have lost a child because of insulin rationing. It's very motivating for policymakers. Um, but one of the hard parts about insulin is a lot of policymakers are now going, well, let's do an insulin bill. Let's make insulin really affordable. And it's like, hold up, everyone. Insulin is not the only life-saving drug that is unaffordable for patients. So if we're thinking about solving this problem, maybe we should think broader than just focusing on one product, although it's an important product for sure. So I spend almost all of my time thinking about specialty drugs. So cancer drugs fall into the specialty drug category. And this is a somewhat dated as far as the year. It's through 2015, but it's a very recent publication um, out of CBO that shows the net spending on prescription drugs by specialty versus non-specialty spending. And even though specialty drugs are used by a small percentage of the population, they represent a very large amount of dollars spent on prescription drug products. So I think there's a lot of bang for the buck if you focus on the drugs that are really expensive and used in a small number of people, because this is where we start to see some of our insurance policies really falling apart. So we've done some work looking at the price of cancer drugs um, that are available today. and um, We've, we noticed that there, is, there are two trends going on. Each bar represents the price of the drug at the time it was put onto the market. So the, each bar could represent multiple treatments. So it's the median price across those drugs when they're launching. And you can see there's a bit of an upward tick where we know that over time we're spending more and more when drugs are coming to market, so when they're first approved. Now, the other thing we know and this is actually now published, so you can cite and circulate, please. <laughs> um, but this is what happens to drug prices over time after they're approved. So we have these two dynamics going on. When a new drug comes onto the market today, it's priced higher than the drugs that came before it, and we see year-to-year -year price increases for all of them, regardless of how high their prices are starting at. So you can see how this trend and trajectory may be causing some problems for affordability. And affordability is a big problem. So we've done some studies looking at the problems of what happens when you are being asked to pay more for your prescription drugs at the pharmacy counter. And the first study that I ever did in this space um, actually was probably going to be my most cited paper ever, which I'm trying to beat it one day with something else. But we looked at uh, cost sharing for Gleevec and what happens if you're a privately insured person and you have a higher first copayment for Gleevec rather than a lower payment. So we're using insurance claims data and we only see the prescriptions that were filled, so we're missing some part of the population. But we found that you're 70% more likely to stop taking Gleevec or another TKI in the first 180 days on therapy if you have a higher copayment. So 17% of people with private insurance discontinued TKI in the first six months of therapy versus only 10% in the lower copay group. 
So we know this is a problem for patients, and the economic literature in this area suggests it's really a problem. You know, the higher the cost, the less likely are you are to be adherent. And some of this is where the benefit design, partially because of high and ever-increasing prices, has started to erode. So for people with private health insurance, they're more likely to have a deductible now than they have been in the past. And also the size of the deductible has gone up too. So about half of people in 2015 had a deductible of about $1,000 before their insurance benefits kicked in. We know that people buying health insurance on the exchange plans, for example, could face deductibles that are the same as their out-of-pocket maximums, which are six or $7,000 potentially. That basically means that when you go to get an anti-cancer drug, like fill it at the pharmacy, you could be asked to pay several thousand dollars up front. So this is causing a lot of problems for people, and it's a bit of a hard problem to study with the data sets that we have currently available. Again, we're seeing claims that have been filled rather than claims that have not. But we know that when people face very high costs, they're more likely to abandon their drugs at the pharmacy counter. Um, I think that the rate of abandonment for cancer drugs, if you have a cost of $2,000 out of pocket, is over 70%. So you go to the pharmacy, they put the pills in the bottle, and then you walk away without it because you couldn't afford to pay the $2,000 or more. dollars. And that sounds high. That sounds sort of like, well, most of my patients aren't paying that. It's like, if you've got a Medicare beneficiary and it's their, some of their first fills in the year, they absolutely are paying that. Only those without low-income subsidies are not. So it's a, it's a big problem that we're contending with, um, especially on that benefit. Another thing that's happening is percentage-based cost-sharing. So this is confusing, but this is a good representation of what a mess we have going on within the pricing system and the reimbursement system. But what happens right now is when you fill your drug at the pharmacy counter, you're paying based on the drug's list price. There's a pretty active debate going on out in the world about what does the price really mean? You know, like your insurance company is not paying list price, but list price matters for what patients pay. So you're paying a percentage of that high price before any discounts are actually considered. There are current policy efforts, which I'll get into a little bit later, to try to change that system, but the bottom line is, if you have an expensive drug and your health plan is asking you to pay a percentage of that drug's price, there's almost no percent that will make that drug affordable. Right now, Revlimid is $21,000 for a 28-day supply. That's the list price. It probably went up since the last time I looked. It's gone up very, very consistently over the last couple of years. If you have to pay 5% of that, that's still a tremendous amount of money for your share, and 5% would be a very, very low coinsurance. So we've got this problem going on where instead of having a predictable flat copay, your price is now tied to what the price of the drug is. So um, for cancer drugs, the rebate or the discounts that are received by the pharmacy or PBM and health plan in particular are going to be small. Um, it's been averaged, I think, I've heard people say roughly between 7 and 10% rebates for cancer drugs versus something like insulin that could be between 40 and 60%. 
So the amount of discounting going on is directly related to the amount of competition in the class and also due to the um, ability for the health plan and the PBM to walk away from the deal. So there's a lot of conversation going on right now in Congress about cancer drugs being part of protected classes. So even if you had multiple treatment options, your health plan and the PBM can't negotiate a better price for those because they're required to cover them. So I always think about it like if you were going to go buy a car and somebody dropped you off at the lot and you had no other way to get home except but to get the car. So you're probably not going to get a good deal because they know you have to buy the car right then. And I think that's sort of what has happened a little bit with the protected classes in Medicare Part D is it makes it kind of impossible to get any leverage in negotiations. So in those cases, um, that PBM and health plan negotiation is um, pretty limited. Now, the other thing here, which we don't show the other side of this, is the pharmacy's actual prices are, they're going through a wholesaler that's a different part of the chain. So it's sort of like everybody's making these purchases separately, and sometimes the pharmacy wins because they paid less to the wholesaler than they get back from the plan, but sometimes they lose because they pay more. It's hard to fix <laughs> because there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people making money, which means that there's an incentive not to change. All right, so how do we try to start to get a handle on this? Um, I'm going to talk about three different policy options that are kind of floating around out there. And that these get brought up by if somebody said, give me your top three things to do, I'd say almost everyone says, well, just generic entry. Like, let's, make, let's do better with generic entry. Um, then there's capping out-of-pocket spending for beneficiaries. So, you know, if 5% of the drug's price is too high, let's just manage that, cap the cost for patients. And there have been efforts both um, right now very active around Medicare Part D and then also across states, cancer parity laws on the private insurance side. Um, and then the last one is sharing rebates with patients. And I'm going to go through each of these and tell you why I don't think these are going to work. And so sorry to be a downer, but <laughs> um, there are some really um, important considerations about the limits of those particular policies on uh, both patient access, but also on drug spending. One day I'm going to have something that's like, here's exactly what will work, and we're going to do it. Um, so then it's more of like an uplift at the end. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about generic entry. Um, so one of the things that has been really interesting, um, and I'm not an economist, so just to set the record straight up front, I'm a pharmacoepidemiologist who transitioned into sort of the policy and economics space. So I think about population level use of medicines in a slightly different way than I think many economists do. And one thing that has been interesting is to see, you know, like once something has been shown in economics, it seems like people are like, no, that's how the world works. And new information, it's kind of hard to adopt. Um, so one of the things that I've been interested in is, um, are specialty drugs different when it comes to generic competition? So generic competition has historically been the way that we have saved money on treating diseases. 
So um, if you think about statins, for example, the only years where we have spent less from year to year on drugs, so like total drug spending has decreased, has been when statins first came onto the market as generics. So we have tons of people using them, we have huge savings, the prices for those drugs drop by about 90%. Everything's great, so you're like, okay, generic entry, that's good. We just have to tolerate these high prices for now, reward that innovation, and then get on generics. But this is also related to competition. So the way that those drug prices go down is because the number of generic manufacturers coming to market goes up. And a couple of studies have been done showing that the magic number tends to be four. So you need at least four generic drug makers to come into the market to really get robust price competition and get that price down. We also know um, biosimilars are not as straightforward as traditional generics. I'm gonna stay focused on traditional generics to show you how even that market has some challenges, but biosimilars add a lot of complexity and expense to their development, so we don't expect to see many, uh, as much savings there. So we did a paper looking at when imatinib uh, became available as a generic drug and looked at what was being spent by private health insurance plans on both the brand and the generic up to two years after the generic was available. And we also, although we didn't publish it, we also looked to see what Medicare was paying at the same time for these drugs, and it was spot on, exactly the same amount. So one thing you see is that we have a pretty small difference in the price that the health insurance plans are paying for imatinib relative to uh, the brand, the generic relative to the brand, and that doesn't really come down much, and it definitely doesn't come down fast. So. This is concerning because the other thing that we know is the gray bars represent the branded drug's list price, and those companies can pay a rebate to lower their list price, so the net price paid by the health plan could be lower. Generics don't pay rebates. So in this case, you have a lot of incentive for plans to keep picking the brand if the brand has a lower net price to them, which, again, we can't observe. So this is kind of a problem. Now, good news is they eventually did break the four manufacturer market bot. So now generic imatinib is much cheaper. So it has come down significantly since the time we published this. And in particular, kind of in, um, I would say it's probably mid-2018 before we start to really see the prices coming down. So if you look at GoodRx today, the price for imatinib is pretty reasonable and is gonna be far lower than for the branded price, which likely just stays high. So this is a little bit concerning. So we now see that there's less of a price reduction than we hope. Um, if we don't get enough manufacturers into the market, then we're never gonna see it come down. And in other work, we've shown that doctors have moved on from Gleevec. So now when you have a new start, there is a huge amount of start for nilotinib and disatinib. And imatinib ends up making up a much smaller share of new initiators of TKIs, which I think, again, highlights the problem that not only do you have less savings than you hoped, you actually have far fewer patients who are benefiting from being able to start on a generic.
Okay, so one, one other thing, and this is a paper that will come out on, in July in Health Affairs. Um, this one basically shows this real problem we have going on right now with Medicare Part D when it comes to cost sharing for generics versus brands. So um, if you look at these bars right here, these, these are more traditional generic entrants where we see a lot of competition, we see a lot of use, we see prices come down substantially, and these are generally lower spending drugs. Now, when we look at those specialty generic drugs, I'm calling these all specialty generic, what we see is that the way that the Medicare Part D benefit closed the donut hole was they accepted a 50% first uh, manufacturer discount on branded drugs that counts as patient out-of-pocket spending. In practice, what this means is that if you take expensive drugs and you're going to hit the catastrophic coverage phase, if you're using generics, you have to spend about $3,700 out of pocket, like true out of pocket to the patient. If you're using brands, you have to spend less than $1,000 because of all of those pharmaceutical company contributions count as your out of pocket spending. What this means in principle is if you have drug spending between $20,000 and $80,000, which are a lot of our specialty drug users, you would save money if you only used branded drugs the whole time. Now, again, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe we want people to be on branded drugs. They can save a little bit of money. But what happens is many people don't even have that option. So there may be generic substitution laws going on. There may be issues where your formulary doesn't actually cover the brand anymore. They cover only the generic. So as a patient, you're like, okay, great. Generic imatinib is here. I can finally start affording other things in my life except for my treatment. And what you find out is, oh, actually, guess what? My price went up by a lot. I'm paying substantially more on generic imatinib because of a bad benefit design and because that price didn't come down as fast or as much as needed. Big problem. Um, and one thing that's a good news piece, the first two are biosimilars. The government recognized that this was going to be a problem and has now changed the policy so biosimilars get the same branded drug discount. So if you look today, the biosimilars actually, you have big savings with them because they fixed the policy but they did not remember to fix or did not think about fixing it for specialty generics, which we're going to have a lot more of those. The other thing we found in this paper was that biosimilar designation is pretty arbitrary. So, you know, is CMS basically taking that the FDA has put this in the purple book, so that's a biosimilar, but if you had a different approval pathway, you're not technically a biosimilar for FDA, which means you get stuck in this pay more category. So there are a few things that have to be fixed there. Luckily, there's some policy debate going on about changes to Medicare Part D, and a couple of the proposals that are out there do fix this plan, whether or not it was intentional. Um, one of them, it was intentional. The other one, I think, didn't realize this was going on, but their plan design actually fixes it kind of accidentally, but in a good way. So let's talk about limiting patient out-of-pocket spending. Um, so I'm going to talk about private health insurance first. We've, we've done a series of studies, um, one of which is published now, looking at orally administered 
uh, anti-cancer parity laws. These are called a bunch of different things. A lot of people call them chemo parity laws. Um, but basically, the context of these laws is that there was concern that if you have private health insurance, you would have to pay more for an orally administered drug versus an infused drug because of the way that cost sharing is arranged. So um, a lot of people, I'd say probably close to a decade ago, were paying flat co-pays when they'd go to the specialist office visit, and then the drug is included in that. Versus if you're on an orally administered drug, you have your office copay, and then when you go to the pharmacy, you have to pay more. Um, and there were a lot of concerns by people that this was causing access problems. And these are very, very popular. So almost all of the states have chemo parity laws in place. Um, although this is a little bit mislabeled. These two states where I have lived do not. I did not, I'm not the cause of that. There's no actual association, <laughs> um, but they're still talking about them. One of the things for the states that don't have them, they tend to have one huge insurance company who has almost the whole market. And that insurance company is not very excited about chemo parity. So that's what tends to hold things up. Now, chemo parity laws are a little problematic in that they only cover part of the privately insured population and they don't apply to Medicare. So they're not really helping as many people as what policymakers would like. So there have been federal proposals to expand parity to all privately insured people um, and across all states. Now the ones who don't benefit are people in self-funded plans. Now if you asked a person, are you in a self-funded or a fully insured plan? Most people will have no idea. They'll be like, I don't know. So like your doctor doesn't know, you usually don't know. The distinction usually is like, does your, is your company large enough to basically take on the financial risk of the health insurance benefit. And about half of people in private insurance are in self-funded plans who don't get parity, and the other half are in fully insured plans that do. So even within states that pass this, only about half of the privately insured population benefits. Now that is helpful for evaluating a policy because the other half of people who don't get access to parity laws, even in states that do pass parity, can serve as a nice control. So one of the things that we did is we looked at what happens to your out-of-pocket spending under parity. Um, what we find is that parity actually has some savings for people who are in the low part of the spending distribution. But as you pay more, parity actually, ironically, looks like it increases your out-of-pocket spending. So what is happening? Well, one thing that is happening is you just said the benefit has to be the same as the medical benefit. So pharmacy and medical have to be the same, but you didn't say they have to be good. So if there's a deductible that applies to your medical benefit, and now a deductible applies to your pharmacy benefit, you could see that increasing your out-of-pocket spending. So we think that part of what's going on here is that more people in these parity states or that have parity applied to them see their spending go up. Now, we've done some new analysis looking at more recent time periods, because this is slightly dated. And same health plans, same, same data set. And what we're finding is that parity in later years actually seems to help. 
And one of the reasons why is that states that passed parity in more recent years used an out-of-pocket cap in addition to saying you have to have parity. So they're like, okay, we want parity between medical and pharmacy, but you also can't charge more than $250 a month, for example. And that seems to have really helped this high end of the distribution kind of come down. So I think that when you're thinking about <coughs> applying rules to like, you know, you can't have worse benefits for medical and pharmacy, you probably should look at, you know, today what's going on with medical and pharmacy benefits. Like, are they actually affordable at all? And with the growth in the use of high deductible health plans, I think we're getting less over time. So the states that passed parity early probably actually had more benefit, um, at least the very early adopters. Um, but then we start to see a bit of a less benefit than we hope. The other thing is we don't see anybody who couldn't afford to fill their drug. So that's the other big caveat here is that we don't know, we know the effect of parity among people filling drugs, but we don't know it among people who don't. All right, so let's talk about Medicare Part D and some affordability challenges. This is one of um, the best examples of what happens on Medicare Part D for someone with cancer. So this was from a Kaiser Health News story, and this is a gentleman named John Crane who has metastatic disease, and he's been prescribed an expensive orally administered drug, and he's on Medicare Part D. And he was supposed to start the drug towards the end of the calendar year. And he basically decides that he wants to delay starting treatment because he doesn't want to pay this high upfront cost in November, let's say, and then have to do it again in January. I can't imagine having this conversation with my spouse about like the financial trade-off between like, why don't we just roll the dice and I don't start therapy yet? You know, it brings up a lot of issues around, you know, I don't know this drug uh, that he's taking, but you guys probably do. I don't know if it's great. That's another big picture question I think Vinay has done a nice job kind of showing is not all cancer drugs are worth these prices. So like, is this drug worth that price and worth having to have this conversation? Yeah, if laying the drug by two months means that he's gonna have a significant, like, clinically bad outcome, that's important. If that drug wasn't really gonna benefit him, then this conversation was a pretty awful thing to have to insert into the relationship. So that's just sidebar, because there is that whole other stuff going on about like, I, I generally come at these problems like, we want to pay for these drugs. Like I'm thinking about the Gleevex of the world that we're like, yeah, let's make sure people have access, but there are lots of things that don't have benefit that have the same prices, and I don't think patients can tell the difference. Um, they rely on their physicians to tell the difference for them. So here's what John's talking about. This is out-of-pocket spending on um, a cancer drug if you started in January and you were only taking that drug, and this is for Revlimid. Uh, it's one of my favorites because the math is pretty easy because you're near $1,000 a month after you hit the catastrophic coverage phase. So basically the way the Part D benefit is operating right now is like a high deductible health plan with no cap. So you end up spending several thousand dollars to fill your first fill. Two thirds of Medicare beneficiaries would fall into this category. 
We've looked at every formulary available on Medicare Part D, including Medicare Advantage plans, and every single one of them cover these drugs at the same design. They, you can't shop your way out of this problem. So if you're on Medicare Part D, this is your problem. You can see that this is a tremendous amount of money to spend over the course of a year, and once you've hit catastrophic levels of spending, you're still spending $1,000 a month. That's crazy. I don't know how many of you have like seniors in your life that you think, oh, okay, yeah, sure, they roll up to the pharmacy and they're like, okay, that'll be $3,200. Like, no way. Literally no one that I know would be able to pay that. They would leave the drugs behind, and we see that in the few studies that have been conducted looking at that problem. So let's talk about what's going on with drug prices for a second. So this is to give you a sense of another phenomenon that's going on as we're trying to improve the benefit. So this is the price for first fill uh, drugs that when they're first being filled on the Medicare Part D program. And these are inflation adjusted so we can compare over time. And each dot represents an orally administered cancer drug. By the end of 2018, there were 54 of these products on the Medicare Part D benefit. And the number of products coming is still growing. So we know that this is not just kind of hypothetically only a few people are impacted. It's like a lot of cancer treatments, and that's kind of where we're moving. Now, the red dots are what happened to the prices. So it's just sort of give you a sense of how much they've gone up for each individual product over this time frame. And you can see that we have some products. These are monthly prices, monthly list prices. Some products are over $25,000 a month. So we have some concerns. Now, another thing that we have concerns about is, you know, over time, we've tried to make the Medicare Part D benefit more generous. There was this acknowledgement that the coverage gap or donut hole was a terrible policy idea because people would be going along throughout the year, and then suddenly they'd have to pay full price, 100% out of pocket for their drugs that they were filling. And even for people taking chronic disease meds, they would hit this part of the benefit kind of late in the calendar year, and they would just stop taking everything. Because guess what? Like, if you're used to paying, you know, 25% of a drug's price and then it suddenly jumps to 100%, you might not find that affordable. So some researchers have called that the January effect in Part D, where you're going along throughout the year taking your meds, you hit the donut hole, you just stop, and then in January you start again, because now you have your benefits back. So Congress fixed this. They're like, let's close that donut hole over time. So between 2010 and 2020, actually they advanced it. So by 2019, we had closed the donut hole. So instead of 100% out of pocket, you pay 25%. But what we compared here is like, what happened to your out of pocket spending? So based on this combination of the benefit getting more generous and the prices going up, Unfortunately, your out-of-pocket spending has increased over time, even after accounting for inflation. This is for the 13 drugs that have been available in 2010 and 2013. Out-of-pocket spending has gone up by almost $1,700 per year after closing the donut hole. So you can see that we have a problem on our hands. Okay. So one more thing I'll run through really quickly is sharing rebates with patients. This is something that is really active politically right now. There was a, 
uh, proposed rule by the administration around sharing rebates with patients, and it's been advanced um, to OMB for review. So it's something that is potentially likely to happen, um, although I think there are plenty of risks with this proposal, and I'll share why. So we talked a little bit about this. Basically, what's happening in the system right now is when you go and fill a drug, you're paying based on the list price. After the sale, your health plan and their PBM get a rebate back from the manufacturer that lowers the total amount that was spent on the drug, but you don't benefit directly. Health plans will say, you benefit indirectly because we use those rebates to lower your premium or keep your premium from going up. So theoretically, it gets cycled back in and keeps your premium lower. There is no transparency at all in the system. So you have no idea. You're like, how much does the PBM get? How much does the health plan get? Do you actually use it to keep premiums low? No clue because of the lack of transparency. And any efforts by states and other entities to try to get more transparency is met with as many lawsuits as you can imagine. So there's a lot of protection of this information. So let's talk about rebates and best case scenario. So we did some work showing if you actually had drugs with the same net price. So these two hep C treatments have prices of about $50,000 roughly. That's the net price that the manufacturer gets when they sell the product. Harvoni has a very high list price and about a 50% rebate at this time. Zepatir has a low list price and basically no rebate at this time. So you can see that out-of-pocket spending for patients would go down pretty substantially if they had a drug's rebate factored in at the time they're paying. I would like to point out the total dollars on out-of-pocket spending. So yeah, you've improved the situation, but you have not made these treatments affordable to the patient. So there's a big question about like, Will pass-through rebates actually help? Kind of. I mean, yeah, if you want to pay your coinsurance, your percentage-based cost-sharing, instead of on $400 list price of insulin, you pay it on $200 list or $200 net price, then you save money. But are you saving enough money to make it affordable for the patient? Maybe not. Also, the level of complexity to do this is not trivial. Manufacturers don't often, or plans don't often know the full amount of the rebate at the time that they're making the sale. There's also this kind of technology that would have to be put in place at pharmacies to make this work. Um, so it's not really necessarily going to be an easy fix. Another thing that really, really gets me about this proposal is that it disproportionately benefits people taking drugs that have a lot of competition. So it benefits people taking hep C and insulin, which is good. We actually, we would like to benefit those patients. But it does nothing to help people who need cancer drugs because those drugs have limited competition and small rebates, which basically means people with cancer will see their premiums go up to taking account for the additional, uh, the loss to the health plan of that rebate when they share it at the point of sale and they will get no benefit. This is really a benefit that only helps certain patients, which again, if we're willing to tolerate premium in increases, we could probably do something that 
actually benefits more patients and benefits patients pretty equally. That's where out-of-pocket caps um, have come into play. Um, right now, there are several proposals floating around um, in Congress around out-of-pocket caps on Medicare Part D. Um, we're working on a piece comparing four of the proposals that are out there that, that are, have the most kind of traction right now. And honestly, capping out-of-pocket spending would benefit people the most. I think if you talk to a Medicare beneficiary, many of them think that they have protections from high out-of-pocket costs. Many people are not taking specialty drugs, though. Those individuals know that they have high and unlimited spending right now. So I think that's something that is kind of a better trade-off for those increased premiums. All right, so I'm not going to go through each of these. I'm just going to put it up here for thought of, you know, I've just shown you a lot of things that I don't think will work, uh, but what might work. I think reference pricing is an interesting idea, the idea of paying for value for drugs, trying to understand the price that should be set based on the clinical value that a product brings to the market. And then reference pricing, there's a lot of conversation about this out in um, the world, thinking about setting the price of drugs. I actually like versions of reference pricing that change the patient's benefit design. So one example would be that you have a free or very inexpensive version of one treatment for your disease, and if you have preferences that make you pick a different treatment, you pay the difference in price. So there have been some nice examples of reference price designs for patient cost sharing that try to steer patients to the lowest cost option that I think are really worth considering. Um, shifting around incentives in Part D and giving plans the ability to really negotiate should be on the table. Uh, Medicare negotiation is something that's complicated because PBMs and health plans don't really have the tools to negotiate. Like I mentioned the car dealership example. You're, you're just not going to be able to walk away. And then regulation. I'm going to just put it out there. It's like, how long do you let the system police itself? Because every single part of the system is about making money, and everybody is making money on the current system except for the patient and the taxpayer. So we could continue to assume that the system will write itself. But when you start to look at what's funding drug development, shareholders, the fact that this is about making money, and it actually has to be. Like, you know, these companies have responsibilities to their shareholders to maximize their returns. In that system, like, nobody's voluntarily going to lower prices. You'd have to actually have more of a stick rather than trying to keep using carrots. So um, just a quick note about um, collaborators and um, some funding for the projects that I presented here today. It obviously takes a huge group of people um, who I've been fortunate to work with over the years, including quite a few awesome grad students. Um, and with that, I will stop. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. 
If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.